Welcome to this week's Twin Geekcast. This is Calvin. And David here. On this week's show, we'll highlight the best of summer 2019 and look at the fall slate of releases. We'll also take a look at Netflix's The Dark Crystal. For our feature presentation, we'll be highlighting the dark western thriller 310 to Yuma from director Delmer Daves and starring Glenn Ford, Van Heflin, and Felicia Farr. Uh, the water shut off in our apartment complex early this morning, and I didn't realize till I was already in the midst of using the bathroom, so. It's just like our film today, um, you're experiencing a bit of a drought. <laughs> it is just unfortunate. Uh, luckily, uh, I was able to get enough water from the taps together in empty gallon jugs that we had to, like, get, get the flush through at least enough. Like, mm. it didn't flush, like, all the way, but... I hope you're gonna is it like all this out. is it like you had to go explore your own morality and because of that it provided you with like ample water to flush no no it was just there's a little bit of water coming out of the end there it was still very drought like i have not finished okay. exploring my morality no you, i think you just need to figure out who you are as a character and come to terms with your conviction and then you'll be blessed with endless springs of water well, it just really sucks now because I can already feel my hands getting sweaty from like doing this in general, like being in a stuffy room, and I've got like a scented candle in here as well that's kind of heating up the room a bit because it's, it's a little smelly, and so I'm going to be really sweaty after the podcast here and not able to shower or even wash my hands to get all this off. I'm just going to be a sticky mess for the rest of the day. That's a... That's how I usually do the podcast, as a sticky mess anyway. So. Well, I feel like that's just the thing, because you can't have, like, a fan running or anything going on, and there's just, like, the tendency around, like, the heated computers and such. It's impossible not to be a sticky mess. Yeah, I mean, it just is in general, as a human. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way of looking at it. Humans are just, like, by nature, sticky messes. That's true. <laughs> We're messy, sticky people. Um there's no new releases this week, so later in the show, we'll be going through a different kind of box office throughout the whole summer, looking at what happened. Mm-hmm. Oh. I have that broken down into some categories, which I guess we'll hold till then. Yeah, that's good that you've highlighted most of that, because I I did not, I've been a bad boy and did not do my homework. Yeah, I think you've seen only three of these that are in here, but that's that's better than I thought. So. That that sounds accurate, and better than I thought too. That's that's more than I usually do. I left the house this summer, uh, at least three I, times. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I did actually go go out last night as well to go see a movie. But of course, you know, I'm going to those throwback showings. How was the you saw Out of the Past? Yes, yes, Out of the Past. I saw because the local theater here is doing a a kind of. Uh, noir dreamy festival thing they're doing every uh, Monday night so like next week they have uh, Robert Montgomery's Ride the Pink Horse which I'm hoping to go see as well um, and the listener won't know but all your screen names are basically build the gals high sorry yes. for doxing you on the show by the way <laughs> oh I mean it's it's in my letterbox profile as well and, uh, and I don't think it's on my twitter but you could find I mean, it very easily. It's. I'm pretty sure it's part of my WordPress name. So I mean, hell, it's on the site already. I'm still trying to dox you. Um, let's see. I I haven't been to anything real exciting this week, but I I am looking forward to our fall releases. Yeah, well, I mean, with the rolled foot, I can't blame you for not leaving the house. <laughs> it's hard to move. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, the the fall um, releases look a lot more exciting. Is that what you want to talk about first or summer? Yeah, let's look at the fall. Okay, fall releases first. So, 
Uh, I think October is the more packed one. Is there anything going on this month, though, that's a little exciting? Oh, God, I can't remember actual release dates. I just have, like, a list of things. Uh, this month we have, uh, this coming week we have It, Chapter 2. Right, right, right. Um, so uh, I, I feel okay about the original It. I'm not sure how I'll feel about this. I feel like the buzz has been reduced, but the casting is so good. We'll have to check it out. Yeah, uh, the first one was one as well that I'm like, eh, you know, I was kind of iffy on because it does feel like a very generic modern day horror film. Like the hmm. old, the, the, the 1990 TV one, it's it's not good, but it's got really good things about it. Like Tim Curry is really great and it makes me, like, like I have a kind of nostalgia for it in ways, but it definitely gets really bad in the second half. So if this, if this new film can pull off a better second half with the adults and everything, then maybe the the two together might become better than the original yeah yeah i think if you put them together you might get something out of it but uh the the newer one is kind of the other way where it's kind of a good film but it doesn't have a lot of good things yeah uh i i do might end up going and see the second one though because i did see the first one with a group of friends back in my my hometown and they were asking if i wanted to go again because i happen to be going up in the area again pretty soon so i might actually now that go- you all are now that you all are adults and you're going to relive your fears of childhood. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a funny thing. One of the friends is like a like terribly anti-horror person and will, you know, only goes in like groups for like this and they have fun. It was fun because he was one of the friends. We were like, uh, I've got a fun memory because I tricked him into coming over once and then just locked the doors and immediately started up a showing of the thing and made him sit through it. <laughs> That's also a good one to be barricaded in for. It, oh, it was it was very funny. He was cowering behind a pillow practically the whole time, and we were just laughing at him. <laughs> so, late September, September 20th, we have Ad Astra, the kind of interior-looking Brad Pitt uh, sci-fi film. Yeah, we're getting lots of interesting space uh, exploration sci-fi films in this last uh, decade or so, I'd say. You know, kind of starting back with, like, uh, Gravity and Interstellar. And then we got, um, like, Arrival as of recently. And uh, even, what, like, High Life this last last year, this current year, yeah? Yeah, I feel like we're getting the more introspective looks. I mean, even after post-Gravity, I felt like there was another push. And that we're far enough past, like, the like dark history of 9-11 and whatnot that we need to focus on the future for America again. Um, uh, whether it's whether it's Space Force or something that actually exists, we have to look to space. Right, I think there's a lot of interesting uh, avenues for space exploration, you know, as more countries are kind of pushing themselves out into the areas there, we're looking ourselves to to see what else is out there. I think, you know, especially with more discussions of uh, Mars being an outlet, more moon stuff, I think everyone's just excited to get back into space. It's been 50 years now since we first went there. There's that huge Chinese uh, space movie this year, so I think we're feeling a little pressure as well that we have to... We also have uh, another one this month, uh, Lucy in the Sky. Is that what it is? Uh, I think that that Chinese one, that was called The Wandering Earth, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Lucy in the Sky, I think, is actually in uh, October, it looks like it's later Later this year. Yeah. And there, there was actually one more I was looking forward to in September, which uh, I think kind of more appeals to me personally. But hopefully there's enough people interested in uh, the, the Judy Garland biopic with uh, Renee Zellweger to go check it out. I just learned about Wizard of Oz, so that's very interesting. Yeah, this one's a little bit more late late Judy's career, when she's a little older and doing her uh, Broadway performances in mm-hmm. the, the 1960s. But, uh, you know, if there's anyone who's kind of a success for, successor to... Um, Judy Garland's kind of 
legacy here in modern day. I think Renee, Renee Zellweger is going to be the best fit for that. And she looks great in the role from these pictures I'm checking out here. Like, that just seems like a perfect match to me. And I'd, I'm excited to, to know about that. I might check it out. I don't know if it's one I'll run out to the theaters to see. But I'm very glad it exists. I'm glad they're putting a spotlight on Judy Garland again. Um, we also have a lot of stuff coming out that's already featuring in festivals so we had telluride and tiff starting within the last week mm -hmm. um as a primary highlight we're all talking about joker yeah i don't know how uh to feel about this one right now there's a lot of no. like there's a there's a bit of backlash with some of the review coming out now and how this the film might be uh the next kind of film bro you know poster child here uh even more like a like not even poster child, but like in college dorm rooms, there's going to be this poster. Like, it's like going a literal to be like, poster, right? Literal poster in every freshman's dorm room for the next three years. Like, I feel like it's weaponizing the interest in like Heath Ledger's Joker and kind of like elevating that into a uh, more um, more actorly performance. But uh, I don't know. At least our superhero films are borrowing from um, King of Comedy and not uh, not all the Dark Knight anymore. Yeah, I just have a feeling that the the commentary of the King of Comedy is going to be lost on any of the people who this film, like, opens the door to. Like, they're not going to realize that. Because I remember watching it, certainly for the first time, and being very unnerved. King of Comedy mm. is, a, is a kind of terrifying thriller more than is any kind of actual drama or comedy. It's certainly not a comedy, I'll tell you that. Um, I just know that we can't expect that from our arts, that they, they they can't telegraph whether something's good or bad, and it's just an absurd expectation for them to do that. I have, I have a hard feeling that this is going to be a Starship Troopers kind of effect, where the people who rally <laughs> around the film are not going to realize that they're the people that the film is criticizing. That's always been a problem with art, is that the people that it's meant for don't get it, and the people that it's lampooning are the ones that attach to it. It's like Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club is another great example. Again, another dorm room poster kind of film here where people just buy into <laughs> it on a surface level. And yeah. they, they, they recognize that there are some more subtextual themes going on, but they just, like, they don't actually understand them. They just think that they're smarter people because they recognize there are subtextual themes. <laughs> you are not your stuff. Okay, let me put that on a poster and hang it up, right? <laughs> yeah, you could, but it won't sell, I'll tell you that. Right. Um, then, what else do we have? We have a whole slew of like Netflix things coming from Irishman, which we talked about last week. To a, you know about this marriage story? Um, I think I know briefly about it. Go ahead and recap me. Oh, it was nice because uh, um, during one of the presentations, um, Scorsese was talking about how Adam Driver's the actor of his generation this week. So, uh, he'll be starring with Scarlett Johansson as opposite. They'll be in a marriage. Uh, and it's another Noah, Noah uh, Baumbach film, so uh, Francis Ha, Meyer um, stories, uh, Squid and the Whale. I'm I mean, a big fan. I think that statement that Adam Driver is the, the actor of the generation currently, I think that's a statement most of us can kind of really get behind. I mean, if you just look over his filmography real quick and who, you know, the kind of stuff he's been in, you know, he starred in a Jim Jarmusch film, he had a big role in... Uh, you know, the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis, you know, of course, he's big in Star Wars right now. But he also, you know, he even worked with Scorsese, you know, and uh, someone like Soderbergh as well. He's huge. And Spike Lee this last year, too. He was in Black Klansman. He was great in Black Klansman. 
Yeah, so Adam Driver really is. He's, you know, <laughs> it's kind of amazing considering where he kind of came from and how he ended up here as this, the kind of biggest and most important actor of the current one. I love Adam Driver, you know. Do you know how good of an actor he is? He went into a black film that's about black representation. It is the main takeaway the press took out of it. So <laughs> you know what to take from that. Well, I mean, I think that might say more about, you know, the modern the American press. press. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Um, he, yeah, in Dead Don't Die, he had this energy, like, don't ask me about Star Wars, and that was kind of like an on-running joke that he had, like, a keychain they had to get uh, uh, permission for, and Disney wouldn't do it, and he did it anyway. Uh, <laughs> uh, Dead Don't Die might get, like, a cult revival. I don't think I liked it, but I think there's going to be a, a second time where I'm like, oh, shit, I That's- see what he was doing. I think that's the general reception. Just people were very kind of lukewarm on it at best. But, uh, you know, it's a Jarmouche film. I have a hard time believing it's just going to fade into obscurity. The ratings on IMDb are terrible, but... Man, nothing happens. <laughs> There's nothing in the movie. But, I mean, I don't see how that's a problem. They're playing movies where nothing happens. You know? Yeah, I, I think so. There's something here. I <laughs> bet there's... Really- There aren't many zombie movies where nothing happens. I'm so certain that there's just something magic to this movie that just didn't click with people. In another ten years, everyone's going to be like, why was this film so trashed, you know? Yeah. Especially when we're looking at our bigger Jarmusch retrospectives as a whole, and we're kind of lauding him as one of the best directors of the 21st century here. I swear, after a second showing it will it'll jump right up my Jarmusch rankings. I I promise. I I, I I think it has to. Yeah. Uh, we also have uh, Parasite, which everyone's already seen because it's online, right? Yeah, it's uh, you know, it's got that good rip that someone did, and uh, you're a bad person if you're watching it right <laughs> now. You should just wait till it comes to the theater. Yeah, none of us would do that or advise you to. So certainly not. Right? Uh, and we definitely won't be leaving the links anywhere on various places you can access. <laughs> no, and don't check our uh, letterboxes. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, Parasite won Palm d'Or this year. Um, you know, another great uh, film from Korea over there. From uh, I don't want name Bong Jun Jun Ho or something. Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna let you butcher this. This is this awful. One. I'm gonna let you <laughs> this butcher is this one. Awful. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, it looks like an actually great film, especially uh, from his last one. You know, kind of coming from uh, Okja, which was kind of a terrible piece of shit to hear awful movie <laughs> the worst movie on netflix is okja it's it's pretty bad but i'm sure like like we said with parasite you know there's going to be lots of cult you know lovers of the film you know people who yeah. appreciate it because it is it's a you know from a, a great director all right my my favorite thing about it is that it's the best uh, great gatsby movie that exists not that i've seen it <laughs> but i just assume that's what it would be Oh, oh! You, you know mean Parasite? I, mean? I thought you were talking yeah, about. Yeah. Oak, I thought you were talking about Oak Just the best Gatsby. I. Not quite, not quite. Uh, but Parasite, um, it asks a lot of questions. Like, who is the actual Parasite? It might be the rich, right, that are living on top of these uh, uh, poor people. Um, a great Korean film has all the elements you want out of a Korean film, but uh, I, I guess I'll have to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a couple of things. I think uh, along with that, in October, I'm even more excited for uh, the Lighthouse coming from Robert yeah. Akers here. I should probably yeah, I think... watch. I should probably watch The Witch in anticipation, shouldn't I? 
You should. Uh, it's uh, it's on your voodoo there. I know. I, uh, yeah. I put it on there. I just so. I have so much lined up for you know October already. I gotta add more new stuff now. Great. <laughs> you got to be able to push something for the witch, which I, I think I, might be the best horror film in the last ten years. I think that's fair. I think that's only deserving, especially since Eggers has only made this one other film before now. So it's just, uh, man, that's it's, I always have such a hard time paring down like my Halloween list every year. So what's does yours have a theme or is it uh, what do you have? There's a little I mean, uh, it's kind of tricky because I have a lot of stuff that I revisit every year. Lots of classics and films that mm. feel like the holiday to me more specifically than they do, you know, just horror in general. And so, but at the same time, I'm trying to balance it out with lots of new stuff to add to lists, you know, so I can find future stuff for, to, to revisit, you know, like this last year I watched, um, you know, Haosu for the first time, which is this crazy, mm. energetic, uh, Japanese horror comedy film. And I'm like, well, that's insane enough to put on the list to watch all Haosu's the time. Haosu's amazing. It is. Haosu's so amazing, you gotta put it on. So. There, there, there's really nothing like it. It's just so batshit insane and, like, out of this world. Uh, very fun, very easy to watch for the content. But this time, I do have something of a kind of recurring theme. I've got, like, a ton of Boris Karloff films that I'm aiming to get through this time, because I'm feeling like going through all those kind of classic monster okay. movies. Um, yeah, so cut any of those off and put in The Witch. <laughs> You'll be okay. I might cut off some more uh, older ones. I don't know. The other, the other part is, you know, just getting a hold of some of these, you know, is going to be a little uh, tough to find. You know, it's not like, I mean, there, there's a lot, like a lot of these I can watch through Shudder. I found, you know, the, it's going to have access to a lot, which is a great streaming service, you know, for horror stuff. My list will mostly be, uh, well, my letterbox name is month of terror, 2019 Cthulhu sea shanties from the deep. So that tells you kind of what it is. Yeah. You've got some interesting picks there. Cause again, you're kind of trying to build up something around the theme of the lighthouse and kind of evoke yeah. those same things. <laughs> Whereas you're just uh, placing one film, I've placed, uh, what, 30 films I need to see <laughs> yeah. just for this one. That's a lot of research, man. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'll be getting to a couple new uh, other things, too, which, like, Midsummer. of course, he's, like, a contemporary of Ari Aster. That's the only way I could fit that in, right? But, right. Because um, you didn't get a chance to see it in theaters, and you just decided to wait it out till now for the yeah. Halloween season. So Midsommar is one of my big highlights for it. And then I'm watching a lot of stuff like Annihilation, you know, a lot of Fog, Nosferatu, um, Abyss, Ghost Ship, uh, kind of nautical horrors. Is it the, uh, are you watching just the original Nosferatu or are you also watching the Herzog remake? Uh, only the original this time. Oh, okay. Well, maybe that's another one to include if you wanted. But the original is, of course, an absolute classic, very, you know, stunning uh, silent noir. Or, yeah. Si silent horror. And should play into a little bit of my uh, nautical themes. In oh, some I think way. so because there's a whole, there's a big section where he travels on the ship over to, yeah. to England, and that's all a really great sequence. That's where you get that iconic shot of him walking across the deck in this very spooky kind of manner. No, nah, it totally fits in there. I'm I, pretty excited about like Reanimator will be fun. Reanimator is definitely it's a lot of fun, and that's a, one of my Halloween staples. Uh, I don't know if it's going to make it on the list for me this year because I have so much new stuff, but maybe it will, and that might be one we podcast about because Reanimator is just so much fun, so hilarious, and so raunchy. And then we're all going to do that De Palma picture, Phantom of Paradise. Yep, that one should be a lot of fun, rock and roll musical kind of thing with uh, you know Phantom of the Opera kind of things going on there. 
looks like a lot of fun. I th- uh, think it's both new for me and you, and we're talking about yeah. having Tyler come on and educate us about us after he became our <laughs> diploma savant. I know. I, I felt like Fancy held that title for very proudly for a long time, and then Tyler just like steamrolled it in a week. Sorry, Fancy. Yeah, he just. Or, sorry, Graham. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he just took uh, watched almost all of the diploma filmography, and you know had a very thoroughly enjoyable time doing that. Uh, otherwise, uh, we have things like Knives Out and Motherless Brooklyn are two I'm looking forward to. Yeah, those seem like some big, interesting ones here from big, uh, big names here. Edward Norton making his directorial debut with Motherless Brooklyn and Ryan Johnson coming off of the uh, the heat of Last Jedi to make something a little more, you know, easygoing. I'd say Knives Out looks like a very kind of simple thing, just a kind of whodunit with some fun. Yeah, it could be fun. Um, yeah, I'm excited. We got, to see him. we got new trailer for Jojo Rabbit today, which which is looking better for me. Yeah, uh, I hope Disney doesn't butcher the release of this. <laughs> is the only thing. <laughs> yeah, I I got nervous when they said they were screening it, and Disney had a lot of objections. Like, what are they going to fund after this? Yeah, what, we can't make fun of Hitler now. That we're drawing a right. line in that. I, don't I thought know. that's all we could do. <laughs> There's a right? lot of ba- there's a lot of backlash lately as opposed to what we can and can't say about Nazis for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't know. Over here in Portland, you know, we had a lot of trouble with those guys. Uh huh. It's it dumb. I mean, they're still <laughs> out there. It's it's very strange that they even exist still. I thought uh, I thought it would just be why would they exist? Well, you know, um, it's it's all the air, the current political atmosphere, kind of allowing them to come out of the woodworks and you know be their bigoted selves in the broad daylight and it's it's dumb and we'll all condemn them in another you know by the end of the next couple of years here it'll all you know they'll fade back into obscurity and they'll be shamed and we'll have forgotten about them um other than that my highlight for the fall hopefully is ford versus ferrari yeah i don't know how i mean i'm not as excited i think as anyone else in the world is for this one but it seems like it seems like people are interested. I think it'll have at least best actor nominations behind it. I'm not totally sure how it will go with the with the direction, but we're going to find out. Yeah, I don't know. It's just I guess uh, these these racing pictures. You know, I'm not interested in racing to begin with. So, or it's, it's James Mangold directing this one. So that's right. I mean, actually, that that's kind of a kind of perfect transition point because I don't know if you remember, but James Mangold directed the remake of Three Ten to Yuma. Yeah, I was thinking about that earlier. Um, that'll be that'll be uh, interesting to see what he can bring to uh, Ford versus Ferrari. Yeah. Uh, do you have any opinions on the remake of Three Ten to Yuma with Christian Bale as well? <laughs> Let's get to that. Let's get to that once we're in the in that part of the podcast. I do though. <laughs> I feel like we're I running long do. as is, but uh, I think we'll be fine. We don't have any limits here, do we? No, I don't um, think so. I'll keep going for a while. We'll make it an hour and a half podcast. Okay. Uh, that's good because our movie is pretty conversational in itself. Hopefully, we'll have enough space for it. But uh, uh, what did what did you think of this summer? Uh, well, I thought it was a very hot summer. I thought it was uh, a little, little uneventful, both movie wise and my life wise. <laughs> yeah, uh, there were a lot of shootings this summer. Uh, very were, depressing. Summer. That, there was that as well. Yes, uh, even recently, lots of Texas shootings at that. We just had one not too long ago. This is a very political podcast this week. Yeah, let Texas succeed. So, uh, what movies did you like? Um, <laughs> did I like any movies this year? Uh, I, uh, I guess I've well, like 
Uh, all right, I'll, I'll give We're you We're starting one. with, like, okay, let's give a summer window. So May to Labor Day. So Rocket Man's included. So. Yeah. I think that's, that's insane that the summer box office season lasts so long. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? essentially, it's just like, as soon as movies start getting good, that's when summer is. Right. <laughs> that's what it kind of feels like. Oh, okay, now we're there. Um, but yeah, I guess Rocket Man was kind of a big one. It's not like a big blockbustery one that you usually think of when you think of summer movies, but it does kind of fit into that still. And it was, it's been my favorite film I've seen this year. But as far as for more quote unquote summer movies, I think I have warmed up to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood a lot more since having seen it. And I, I think it's unquestionably the most uh, creative and artistically driven of, you know, any of the summer blockbusters this year so for that alone it, it gets high marks of the three you saw <laughs> is that your favorite is that if was it only three was it rocket man in hollywood and and Endgame? john wick oh and oh. john wick okay so i yeah. guess Endgame too if we really want to talk about it but i feel like we have no we have totally and it's uh you know the thing about it is that it's a good conclusion but an unremarkable film i think yeah we have a whole podcast just on Endgame if you're into that kind of thing yeah uh no i would say hollywood was not my favorite uh i would say rocket man definitely struck more of a chord with me forgive the pun um (laughs) but uh, especially because of my own love for elton john you know and they just did a good job of capturing capturing the spirit so much and making you know some really nice twists on classic songs and seeing that story come to life uh you know i thought that was much more uh, engaging and entertaining for me personally than Once Upon a mm-hmm. Time in Hollywood was, but I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is probably the better film from a, like a, just a technical standpoint because Rocket Man does fall into trappings of you know musical biopic issues and is is a little it falls into yeah. some I'd say structurally, but I think it's also ge- ingeniously inventive. Yeah, but by no means is it just, like, stuck in, in no, those trappings. No. It definitely finds a way to break off the shackles in some really creative moments. Again, we did a whole podcast on Rocket Man as well and, and sang its praises. But, uh, you know, Tarantino's film, it definitely feels totally divorced from any other kind of movie going on. It feels like its own kind of movie. It's a Tarantino movie, and you know that. It, it genuinely feels like a movie from 69, which is a great compliment to it. Yeah, I mean, you definitely see that in the aesthetics, I think. And, you know, Tarantino really pours his heart out into making a film that feels like, you know, something uh, of the time and, you know, really capturing that time period that he didn't live in necessarily himself, you know, but he did certainly through movies. And I think that's kind of the Mm. message there of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And you've also seen John Wick to round off our most critically acclaimed movies. Yeah, um... And John Wick uh, was a bit of a disappointment for me because it just gets way too stuck up its own ass, I think, as far as lore-wise and stuff <laughs> going on. It's it's lost the heart that the original film kind of contained so well. Yeah, uh, I, I really enjoyed John Wick, I, but we've gone over this several times. It's kind of ascending for me and descending for you in quality. Yeah, well, We're looking for a different thing, I think. And that's the thing, is that, you know, the film, your enjoyment of it will really depend on what kind of movie do you want. Do you want just solely, 
like spectacle action where Keanu Reeves shoots as many people and you know kills people in creative ways and different things and that's totally what you're going to get and if that's the only thing you want then that's great and that's going to be exactly what the series delivers and that seems to be what the films are pandering more towards as the series goes on whereas someone like me who really connected with the heart and the kind of revenge aspect and the characters of the first film and into the second film where it kind of carried on from there but up the action more so uh, you know, you're going to lose that more with each entry, and it seems yeah. that that's the direction they're going in, that they're abandoning the simplicity and, uh, you know, motive of the original film for something just that's just choreography of the movie, I feel like we're going to end up with eventually. I think they reached a challenging point where you'd have to restart the movie every time to get to that human element, and they want to do a continuation, which is, you know, what it is, essentially, but, but it could have that fault in it, too, because of that. Well, that's the thing, definitely, and I had the the unfortunate experience of seeing the movie in theaters before the sequel was announced, like in that one-week time frame when there that yeah. was, and so I went in expecting a, a cap to the end of the trilogy there. I'm like, the film's going to end this whole thing, we're going to end the John Wick saga, and then about in the final 20 minutes, it's like... You know, things aren't wrapping up yet. It's just still going up and, and ratcheting up the, the stakes here. How are we going to conclude all this? We're not going to conclude this. It's, it's just going to keep going. Okay. <laughs> and it was I getting... mean, I guess because they had always talked about it as a franchise before release, I was really expecting the continuation. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always talk of like a TV series spinoff with like the Continental, but... yeah. Uh, you know, I don't um, know. I didn't. I didn't envision. I'm just afraid it's going to get franchise fatigued. I was. I was looking forward to something that's like someone who knows how to tell a story and just stop it. But it seems like that's not the age we live in. Still, unfortunately. Uh, on the other end, it was the summer of bad sequels with big budget titles. We had like Lion King, Aladdin, Men in Black, Shaft, Child's Play, Godzilla, Fast and Furious. Oh my God! You forgot No Manches Frida too. Oh yeah, No Much as Frida <laughs> 2 has a sequel finally, which we covered for extensively for four months without knowing about the film. Yeah, that was uh, quite the humorous undertaking. But yeah, lots it's of called, sequels. Oh. It's called like Toda's. Don't worry about it. What are you going to say? <laughs> I was going to okay. say there, there are lots of bad sequel reboots kind of going on right now that we're still stuck in this loop of. That's I think when we look back at uh, the history of film for the late 2010s here that's kind of what we're going to remember we're going to remember the kind of uh how was i don't want to say artistically devoid because there are lots of great indie stuff going on still as we can see especially through stuff like a24 who's really giving voices to you know actual artistry but as far as for actual studios go you know they're really doubling down on just the same old same and that's the extent of our Lion King coverage. Uh, for art house films, like you say, A24, we have Farewell and The Last Black Man of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Which I know Tyler had uh, high praises for lately. He finally got to go out and see it. Yeah, it has really amazing cinematography. I don't feel like it has good storytelling, but that's, you know, that's kind of Tyler's niche anyway. Otherwise, the summer was filled with horror films like Crawl, Ready or Not, Midsommar, um, 47 Meters Down. Uh, a few others in there, but uh, Crawl and Ready or Not stand out. Yeah, I, get, I mean, I didn't go see any of these, of course, as you know, but uh, in general, horror has really uh, upped its you know, game in the, the last uh, 10 years, I'll say. I'll say 10 years. Yeah. And again, we're, we're looking forward to great stuff in you know October, like we talked about as well. So, you know, lots of horror, big horror fans out there have plenty to, to eat up here. 
Um, and ready or not, also, I just saw this week, so quickly it kind of carries on to the recent theme. Like last year, we got, um, what was it, like Tag and uh, Truth or Dare and Game Night all in the same year. And it's kind of on that premise that a, a night at the theaters could be like a family game night outing. Isn't there like a Clue remake in the works as well? Like just lots of <laughs> Yeah, there is. We need more board game movies of some kind. Yeah. Um, this one, uh, Samara Weaving's really excellent. Uh, Andy McDowell is her in-law, uh, new um, step, what do you call it? Uh, mother-in-law. Uh, she's a lot of fun in it. Uh, it's kind of lit, sickly green, which I don't like, but uh, the rest of it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Andy McDowell, of course, you love, you know, cause Groundhog yeah. Day. Yeah, of course. I, I think she's American sweetheart. She always has been. And she never got the role she deserved. No, I agree. After the 90s, things just kind of dropped off. So when you mention her name, I'm like, what? Oh, she's still a person. That's right. <laughs> yeah, she's a person and she's still funny in this. Uh, on the other side of it, we do have one thing that I think children will look back on and see. Uh, this was the beginning of like the nostalgia of my childhood uh, for 2019. Like my daughter. Um there's Dora, Toy Story 4, and Detective Pikachu, all pretty remarkable kids' films. I think it's what's really remarkable about it is that they're kind of things from our childhood in a way a little bit, too, there. Yeah. You know, I, I grew up with all of those properties in some way or another. So. Yeah, to me, it feels like the definitive, like, bringing back to a new stage of childhood. Like, I feel like my daughter's generation gets their first movies right now. Mm-hmm. It's just interesting to see how seeped in nostalgia we really are that you know some of those aren't aren't going to carbon so like there's no equivalent of like i'd say something like the lego movie you know i think that was kind of a benchmark of children's entertainment that would you know supply the foundation of uh childhood nostalgia to come in later generations i think that's one that stands out to me in the last 10 years i think they're all built around what happened with the lego movie and we just got the playmobil movie this week which is just a lego (laughs) movie but no personality just like the toys are well, there's so many of that. Like, had what they had, like the Ugly Dolls one as well. Not uh, that long ago, yeah. they had, we had uh, Angry Birds. Um, mm-hmm. There's so the many. Secret, that, secret that, Life of Pets was bad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's so many like that. That's just obviously trying to coast off of the success of something like the Lego Movie, which it was genuinely inspired. And then you, yeah. st- you still sort of like the sequel, I recall. Yeah, the sequel was pretty good earlier this year. Already forgotten, but I don't think it always will be. Um, I think it's because it was targeted toward young women, and the press don't love that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, I don't imagine them doing like a third one of those. No, I, I don't see it now. Um, but I, I think they have to go another way with it. They'll find another license to attach to it. They'll, they'll justify it somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, Dora, though, Dora is pretty exceptional. Uh, yeah, that, that came out. You said you enjoyed that one, taking your daughter to that. You think that's? Uh, does she watch the show at all as well? No, uh, she doesn't have any interest in the show, so it really surprised me. She was pretty edge of her seat for the whole thing. That's interesting. Maybe you just need to show her, like, Indiana Jones then. Yeah. And she'll enjoy that. Uh, She already, well, walking out of the theater, she spoke fluent Spanish, so mission (laughs) accomplished. Um, Dora taught my daughter Spanish and uh, saved her future, so thanks, millennials. (laughs) Uh, another thing we could be nostalgic about, we have a new season of Dark Crystal. Oh, yes, that's something else to talk about. Um, I, I think I briefly mentioned it on the podcast last night. I don't know if you kept that bit in, but I just I spent a good five minutes trashing the original movie. <laughs> why Why do you hate it so much before because, we get going? Because the, it's all terrible. <laughs> There's 
terrible work within like the the puppet design is awful for the gelflings and there's like mm. it's just the most basic kind of hero's journey story and it was so disappointing to see from someone like Jim Henson but from what i hear the tv show just like actually puts effort into those things it's um i wonder if you could call it a hero's journey still it's it's not quite it's like a a tense political thriller maybe a a very dark it has a really dark essence to it. Kind of lives up to its name. Finally, mm-hmm. um, the Gefflings and what do you call them? The the, the suckers, Skeksis? the Skeksis? I think that's what. You My said. wife gives me a bad time because I I called them the wrong thing all weekend. Well, uh, that's various... that's a whole you know mispronouncing things is a hallmark of this show. So by all means, yeah. go ahead. Um, I I accidentally called them the Sexies at one point, which <laughs> she, she really took exception to. Uh, they're they're like those bird vulture like creatures and they look so filthy and nasty in this uh it gets into a lot more grotesque uh, you still have like the spider creatures um and it, it's very well layered between these like multiple factions of people and it's like game of game of the rings intrigue which is really interesting oh that's that sounds much more interesting than again like because part of the problem with the original movie is that it is just the most basic bare bones hero's journey you know prophecy destiny go get the magic item thingy and you know save the day stuff like it's just like textbook at that point it's it's it was very boring i found (laughs) i i was so impressed with how dark it gets by about episode seven where it feels like a children's horror film or something um there's also the fact that the gefflings are like deteriorating you could see how they the the sexies came in and they uh, they infiltrated their culture and how how people end up doing that in real life um it has a big commentary on how uh people could get dispossessed or how the innocent could be looked at by a more powerful or a more dominant group and taken over so it's a really interesting look at that i'm surprised it's in the kids section for netflix though do, do they have any parallels with real life things like uh, gentrification perhaps is that something that come, comes up <laughs> i think you could say that's in there but uh uh maybe maybe tyler should read up on it uh, <laughs> but we'll see all right and meantime i think we spent a lot of time here kind of reflecting on uh what's to come and what has come but uh you know, let's talk about the film that we chose to highlight this week. I don't want to waste, you know, all our podcast talking about, or not waste. I don't want to use up all our time talking about just stuff that came, you know, in this past year here. But also, I think what you mean is finally something I really want to talk about. Yes, yes. <laughs> Three ten to Yuma. <laughs> Screw all this other shit. Let's talk about good movies. Uh, it's a it's a good western, eh? There is a lonely train. Call the 310 to Yuma. The pounding of the wheels is more like a mournful sigh. There's a legend and there's a rumor when you take the 310 to Yuma. You can see the ghosts of outlaws go riding by. In the sky, in the sky, way up high, the buzzards keep circling the train, while below the cattle are thirsting for rain. 
it's all so true, they say, and the three tend to humor. A man may meet his fate, for fate travels everywhere. Though you've got no reason to go there, and there ain't a soul that you know there. When the three tend to humor whistles its sad refrain, take that train, take that train. Yes, I love three tend to humor. I this is like the 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 western i'm gonna stand on a hill and scream about because it's not uh sung about you know it's not praised as much as all the other kind of western classics that we like to talk about like stuff like red river and once upon a time in the west and stagecoach and all those other great ones that we've discussed on the site before i think the primary reason why is because it's focused and it's slim there's it does one thing very well yeah well there's a lot of great things about it i think um Part of the other thing is that the the star power just in the production of it isn't as noteworthy as something like, uh, you know, like High Noon. We talk about the parallels with this film a lot. Uh, but you got someone like Gary Cooper and, you know, producer Stanley Kramer behind the helm of that. So there's some real, you know, oomph to the, the process there. Whereas someone like uh, Delmer Daves here and star Glenn Ford, who is a very noteworthy star, but he's not Gary Cooper. You know, it's just not as recognizable name. So it kind of gets overlooked. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, and, I mean, Glenn Ford really shows up, too, in a really impressive way where you're like, is this guy always overlooked at everything, or is he always this good? I think he kind of is generally overlooked in a lot of things. He's really great. You know, another, you know, he had a lot of stint in uh, big noir films as well. You know, two names I'll drop right here. There's uh, Fritz Lang's The Big Heat, fantastic noir film. You know, it was a great one. He also did one, like, just a bit before that uh, with Charles Vador called Gilda, which is a great vehicle for Rita Hayworth. But here he brings a lot of that noir sensibilities back to the atmosphere, and he does the kind of role reversal of his career by playing a villain, you know, before Henry Fonda ever did with Once a Lot of Time in the West, we see Glenn Ford using his kind of charming leading man sensibilities to blur the lines of villainy with uh, Ben Wade. Yeah, and it's, I mean, it's pretty great, too, because Van Heflin, I think, uh, kind of plays the same character as he did in Shane, wouldn't you say? In a way, I think he plays a, a little more of a kind of, um, I don't know, regressive character, I'll say. He's, he's very cowardly i think kind of in the beginning yeah. in, a, in a way that's not outwardly cowardly it's this self-protective uh, identity he kind of puts on there's that whole beginning where he won't interfere with this stagecoach robbery going on and mm. ben wade just basically pushes him around like he's just some you know schoolyard bully and and uh his character yeah, he kind of gets i mean his farm's gone bad the crops aren't working out because there's no rain and he kind of gets jerked around into this whole long con but i you see that he was always a character of conviction, and that always stood with him. And for me, it's a movie about his conviction. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. And that same kind of morality and, you know, doing the right thing theme that High Noon kind of carries. But instead, whereas High Noon has that as the consistent character trait for Will Kane, it's the point where all of the disparaging, you know, downfall of Dan Evans's, uh, you know, farm and everything going on with the drought there has made him into this terribly you know cowardly cynic like he just is willing he's bowled over by any and anybody and he's got to get back that conviction you know throughout the yeah. course of the film 
I think he's very, um, well, he's emasculated because his family can't eat and he's not being able to perform where he needs to. And then this guy comes in who's all rugged cowboy type and uh, kind of shows him what he needs to be able to do. I think that's a, that's a great observation as well. Of course, you know, our masculinity lens is always a great one to look at the Western genre for. And definitely the emasculation of, you know, Dan Evans' character is a big part, especially when you uh, consider the relationship between him and his wife. And his wife, obviously, you know, doesn't appreciate this, this fallout of his conviction. I think she definitely doesn't view him as much of a... Um, you know, masculine figure because of that, because he's not providing, because he's not standing up to the evils of, you know, the West. I think uh, Felicia Farr, too, shot really nicely here. The women, exceptionally, are shot very nicely. Yeah, Felicia Farr is actually in lots of uh, Delmer Day's films as well. She was in, yeah. you know, like, the she and Glenn Ford did, like, three films preceding this one with Delmer Day's, mm-hmm. one of them being, just the year before, another Western which I recommended to you, called Jubal. Yeah, Jubal's all right. Yeah, I like Jubal quite a lot. Not quite as much as this. This one's, again, a kind of personal favorite, but uh, Jubal is kind of in the same vein. But you get good guy Glenn Ford there, and you, you put him up against kind of a bad guy. Um, uh, shoot, I'm losing his name already. Rod Steiger, that's who it is. That's yeah, right. yeah. Right. Um, I like uh, I like Felicia Farr, too, and it's nice because it's nice when women get typecast into westerns, too. Yeah, she's got a really great role. It's a very small role, but that scene at the yeah. bar is probably the highlight of the film, I think, as you it's said. It's my favorite shot. Like, you have the shadows coming in through the floor, and you have the drinks lined up in such a way that it's it's poetic. It, it feels like it feels torrid and hot inside. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's certainly this, this tense relationship between... Uh, you know Felicia Farr and uh, Glenn Ford there as well. That yeah. very that sexual connection, and the uh, I think there's a history there as well. You kind of get the sense with them. You know they bring a lot of that to the role, and so that that sexual chemistry really ignites when they're alone in the bar together, and the implication of the activity there that goes on. Yeah, I mean it looks like there's something happening, and <laughs> that goes into play with the Van Heflin's uh, masculinity too. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely a, a play here again. And I think the casting of Van Heflin with that does add a lot to the character as well because he is not a conventionally attractive actor like someone like, like Glenn Ford is here. He has a very kind of uh, interesting kind of stonish face, kind of like a, a Bogart type. Yeah, it's it's like rugged and streaky looking. It's a different face. Yeah, I think that makes him an kind of interesting character. And again, we got we had that same kind of. I think we've mentioned that as well when we talked about Shane before. Yeah, um, and he he plays well to that type here and in Shane. Mm-hmm. He he's a great uh, Western figure. I think again another kind of overlooked one. Van Heflin's not a, an actor anybody talks about. He's not. A, no. He's not usually a starring person. You don't think about him in that light, but he does well. He really holds the film. He drives the film for the most part here. You know, him and kind of Glenn Ford take te- turns doing that, but he is just as important a player here as Ford is. Yeah, um, I think an important thing to highlight is, I think part of why you love it, it's such a noir film. Yes, it is extremely noir-like. Uh, I'm not comfortable enough saying it's noir enough to say it's a noir, but it has so much of the aesthetic and feeling and cynicism of noir. It's the closest Western I can think of that borders on noir like that. They're usually like diametrically opposite in, in genre conventions there, but they really converge here. 
How did you feel when I said it was a noir with cowboy hats? <laughs> and it's basically kind of what it feels like here. Because, again, you've got the kind of cynical, disparaging uh, tone of the film going on. It's very melancholy throughout. The lighting, though, the the, the way the film is shot, that's what really sells it as noir-like. Because it is cascaded in these beautiful, dark shadows throughout, which reflect the kind of gray morality of the characters going on. That's why I think the cinematography choices are so keen, because... You know, whereas uh, usual morality of Westerns are very clear and cut. You got, you know, the the good guys and the bad guys and the hats there kind of, you know, indicate that you got your white hat Western, you know, cowboys and black hats. But here, mm. here it is. It's, it is a mix of moralities. You know, we take someone like Glenn Ford, who is a leading man, who is a hero type, and we cast him as the villain. And he tries to use his charm to you know, kind of weasel his way out and he tries to, to blur the lines like that and get out of it here and, and make you empathize with him. How did it make you feel when I said that the 1517 to Paris is a sequel? <laughs> I thought it was a dumb joke, but uh, kind of fitting. <laughs> I guess because they, like, grow up being cowboys and then the the only action sequence is over a train. Um, there's probably a lot I could dig into there, but I'm not going to do it. I guess. I mean, it's 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 a vague connection at best. I, I wouldn't <laughs> say it's vague. I'd say it's a spiritual successor. <laughs> oh, I guess in terms of uh, spiritual successors, there is merit to talk about the remake, which we briefly mentioned earlier. Yeah, um, so we have the Mangold remake, which has a few bigger actors who are... It sells names a little bit more than this would have. Yeah, uh, even got bigger people in the supporting roles, like uh, the recently passed uh, Peter Fonda plays mm-hmm. the, the drunk Alec, Alex Porter in the film there. And we have Russell Crowe and Christian Bale kind of informing the buddy relationship. Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a good remake as far as recent Western remakes go. I enjoy it. Uh, you know, it's a bit different. It certainly doesn't, you know, equal this in any kind of level, but uh, oh. it doesn't material justice. I think the I think the good part is is that it has a little bit more in it. It's more willing to put in a little bit more action and bravado into it. Um, it's it's uh, definitely more of a modern you know kind of action western here. The very different kind of film. Whereas this you know original Three Ten to Yuma here is a mood piece more than anything. It kind of takes away the the noir elements and it just becomes a western again. Yeah, that's it's definitely what it is. Again, kind of modern day Western action film with the the kind of budding relationship there between the characters, and it ends a bit differently. Uh, I won't go yeah. into how, but um, I guess uh, should we talk about this ending? Yeah, uh, let's talk about the ending here because it's. Uh, I think it is really a, a beautiful kind of uh, culmination of everything kind of coming up. There's, um, you know, especially visually, it's it's quite a splendor, and you get the action finally delivered. Because you're waiting all film, and it's like a ticking clock, just like it was in um, in High Noon. Yeah. And so you're anticipating it. It has, like, the enunciated strings, like the single strings, like, ticking down the clock. And then we finally get to, you know, what's in the title, the 310 arrival of the train. Well, and like you said, it is very similar. Both, you know, titles are based on the time that, you know, they're waiting for. Right. Both literally times that a train will arrive. There's lots of... Uh, not nearly as many clocks here, but there are a couple instances of clocks that we get to see as we kind of click closer to time in 310 Yuma here. Yeah. The same themes about rising up to duty and, you know, doing, uh, you know, your moral obligation. Uh, and you got that kind of cynical tone to it. There are a lot of parallels here, but they are very different feeling films, again, because of that very melancholic tone that 310 Yuma presents. 
and once he finally becomes, once Dan finally becomes a man of his own conviction and is able to kind of set things right and help the guy, uh, it's it's the most optimistic Western ending I've ever seen, which kind of leaves a bad taste in my mouth. But but it's also uh, it's also mockishly sentimental in a way that uh, it's okay. You feel good. Uh, they you know they ride off on the horse over the sunset. That's what it is. Sort of. It it definitely does a one eighty tonally here. But I think uh, personally awful. It, I thought. Uh, I you see. I ha- I have to disagree because I feel it's very really? deserved. Yeah, I feel it's very deserved because we yeah. have that character arc of Dan Evans' character here. He's really earned that good ending. He's earned the rains that you know wash away the drought at the end of the film there by revitalizing himself as a man. I just feel like films should end like in a way that's consistent with the rest of the movie. I guess. Oh, I mean, then then you don't have change, you know. I think that's. Uh, I think you'd find you disagree with that if you look back at some of the kind of important things. Look back at something even as iconic as Casablanca. You know, Casablanca ends on a different note than it. You know, starts with it ends on a more romantic kind of note. It is inconsistent. You know, uh, Rick Blaine's character does have a major character arc change. So here does Dan Evans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the important thing is that the cinematography is so great that whatever I dislike, it's forgivable. It's it's an absolutely stunning film. The thing is that the ending, even if it's not something you agree with, it's not enough to sour the whole experience because it is, again, the majority of the time it is that kind of melancholic, somber film and you can kind of just put it on to sink into the mood. And I think one of the big things we've yet to highlight that really contributes to that even more than the cinematography is the score and the music of the film. Especially that intro track, which you say is your favorite. Yes, so the Frankie Lane theme for 310 to Yuma, I think, is the best theme song of any Western film. Just period. You know, both the classics and the Italian ones and whatnot. Uh, Yeah, I think it's better than all of them, personally. Wow. (laughs) I mean, it's good. Yeah, and and, and mostly talking about, like, uh, the actual vocal... Uh, themes here you know like i'm not gonna compare this to any leone stuff that's not fair no i mean maricone <laughs> every maricone song is better than this but this is good yeah uh, i think it's better you know what you got your comparisons to like uh and frankie lane did a lot of them i think that's another thing to point out you know he did stuff as well like gunfight it okay corral i believe he did the, the man from uh Lurami. Mm. uh, uh I'm going to correct myself if I'm wrong. But the big one as well, the kind of the joke one to talk about, is that he did the theme, the kind of iconic theme from Blazing Saddles. Huh. Did he? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, and the reason why, yeah. you know, because uh, Mel Brooks wanted to evoke that kind of old Western theme. But the thing about it was that, you know, when he wrote the song, um, he didn't tell him, uh, he didn't tell Frankie Lane that it was a comedy Western. He just had him sing it straight. Yeah, and that, I think that works out that it's so straight. There's a uh, in Blazing Saddles, and um, I think this works out here too. Yeah, no, it's a great one. Again, it it immediately evokes the somber tone of the film, and then like High Noon, they you know string the music in the the kind of recurrent theme of the song throughout the score, and you hear characters whistling yeah. it and stuff throughout. And that continues to evoke that and really double down on the atmosphere of this film and really build it up. It's it's really beautiful, very wonderful uh, musical, you know, compliment to the film. I just want to say, not better than Leonard Cohen, though. So. Better than, uh, oh yeah, the, the... McCabe. Yeah, I guess the other ones you could you argue... Like, I, I could hear an argument for, like, the Magnificent Seven theme from Elmer Bernstein. Uh. People really like that one a lot. And, you know, I like the, the opening to The Searchers a lot, um... 
but this one just really, I, I feel like it perfectly sets the tone for the film, and uh, I love listening back to it, uh, even it outside does. the film. It does, and it, it is listenable outside the film. Mm-hmm. It's just a really great Western theme. Um, and again, you know, kind of evoking the same thing with the trains as well. I think we've mentioned this briefly, is that Western films are just generally better with trains. They are. Uh, I mean, the train is a great component, and here, especially the shot of the trains here, really stunning with all the smoke. Yes, to, I guess to go back to talk about the kind of the conclusion of the film, um, where we do get all the action, we run through the gauntlet of gunmen, you know, getting to the train, and then there's that, that really beautiful moment where they're walking up to the train to get on and jump on, and the combination of the black smoke from the chimney of it, as well as the steam coming off of the wheels and everything, just to evoke, you know, that they envelop them in this giant cloud. Yeah. And it's it's I really mean, stunning. Something about the steam cloud almost implies the aesthetic release that you're about to get from the rain. It's really beautiful. Mm-hmm. I, it, it is, and so again, that's that's another thing where I'm like, I don't, I don't know how you can't get behind the ending. It's just so beautifully done, and especially it's just because it's optimistic. I don't like, and <laughs> I don't like westerns to ever end in optimism. I think it's really stupid. But that's it. <laughs> see, see, I kind of feel the same in the noir sense, and that's where it kind of betrays that. But again, I, I find westerns in general, not counting the spaghetti ones, of course, you know, they are generally more optimistic and upbeat, and they're very, you know, uh, embroiled in this idea of American optimism, you know, of the time. That's mm. when, you know, idealism is its top. Versus, of course, your preference well, for the Italian ones, which are the exact opposite in their cynical attitude towards the West. Yeah, my my idea of the West is very violent. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. well, you this, know. And this thing is that that's where these 50 films, the, these 1950 films started cropping up and becoming more cynical, more revisionist. Stuff like High Noon, which kind of rejected the idea of, you know, uh, the consensus of everyone doing their duty and rising up. You know, you got stuff like The Searchers coming out a year before this, which definitely doubles down on the revisionism and, you know, the questionable I mean, morality of the West. If it is an optimistic Western, I want to be optimistic about the West and not just one guy's conviction and characterization, mm-hmm. I guess. Uh, I, I, this isn't really optimistic about the West. I mean, eventually it yields crops at the end, right? But that's, you know, it's not good. Well, it's yeah, it's not. Uh, unlike many other Westerns, Three Thin to Yuma is much more central to its character conflict than it is commentative about the the West as a whole, as a concept, as an idea. Uh, as a mythology even but you know it's definitely centered on the morality and the the characters there again it it evokes back to high noon but i think not quite on the scale that high noon achieves with its discussion of morality and you know using the iconic western marshal as this archetype for that yeah it's not quite the 1525 to paris but uh, <laughs> it has interesting ideas again i i understand why this film may not be as recognized again especially because of how much i've referenced high noon and you could see it as potentially derivative but it is very oh (laughs) you know it's it's very derivative i think all the best parts are from high noon i you know i think i think they're very different i think again because the best parts i don't think are for high noon the very dark cinematography the musical choices there they're very different but they are in a way married to some of what high noon kind of paved the way for i think high noon is definitely the benchmark film there and if 310 yeah it couldn't be made it could not be made without high noon i should say Mm-hmm. I don't think it would have broke the mold in the same way that High Noon was able to if it was made uh, and, and High Noon didn't exist. It, it wouldn't quite be the same, and it doesn't carry the same uh, 
themes as heavily as uh, High Noon does with its ties back to McCarthyism and the, the real world analog of that. And uh, speaking of like McCarthy, I always felt like Elmore, Elmore Leonard was like the, um, he like predated Cormac McCarthy in telling really psychological dark Western stories about interior humans. And uh, I think that's what really gets me here. Well, I think that's what's so different than uh, High Noon is that it's a really well written film. This is another uh, interesting thing as well, because this is the first adaptation of any of uh, Leonard's stories. This uh, yeah. this film for High Noon, uh, 310 Yuma here. And I know he definitely appreciated this adaptation more than the later one. And uh, I don't see how you couldn't. Again, it's a it's a beautiful film, despite any complaints you might have. Yeah. I mean, better than Jackie Brown. <laughs> you know what? I'll agree with that. I will agree with that, because I love this film so much. This is, again, one of my... One of my pet westerns, I'll call it here, a, f- a favorite that I love to talk about, that I'm very glad to talk about here, that we get a highlight that may not be as celebrated by many other, as many other western aficionados. Yeah, I think because it's so slight and uh, so thin that I think you get to have that as your own. I don't feel like many will claim it. And that's fine. I think I, uh, it, it feels more personal than to me that I get to keep this. This is yeah. my one special film. Everyone will talk to you know the heavens above about Hawks and Ford and Leone sure. westerns. You know everyone's got those, but I get three ten to Yuma and I get Delmer Daves. That's fine to have, I think, and I think it's it might, I think it's admirable to have that one instead because uh, it does really take personal choice. It is a really gorgeous film, and it's written well. Mm-hmm. But but again, I can see like there's a reason why, despite how much I love the film, it did not make my you know uh, my list that I put for the site for the the ten greatest westerns because oh, I feel yeah. like I I do feel like High Noon you know executes its role just just a hair better you know just a hair a bit more iconically. It may be great, but it's not definitive. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. I can agree with that. It's it didn't pave the way necessarily. It's not iconic by any particular means. It's not as, yeah. as as well loved, but that doesn't mean it doesn't deserve to be. I think what we love about this is also contained to this. It wasn't something that changed the way westerns were made or anything. It's just really, uh, really significant in itself. Yeah, I, I agree. It's a it's a singular kind of film and very contained in its impact. And I'm very happy to have the opportunity to highlight it here because, like we said, you know, uh, you know, I can even recall that I kind of just stumbled across the film at my local library. I saw it sifted there, and I'm like, I haven't heard much about this one, but I'll check it out because I was on a Western binge, you know. Well, for me, it's probably been like 15 years since I saw it. Like I said, it was like way before I saw the uh, remake of it. Um, and I had approached this one, which uh, I, I think a lot of people hadn't seen it before the remake, which kind of allowed that to, because like we're saying, it wasn't the defining Western. It sort of allowed that to be showcased as one. I definitely think most people today know 310 to Yuma as the the Russell Crowe and Christian Bale films, and they do yeah. this this classic one. Um, you know, I Which think is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> go fix that shit. It's on Criterion. Again, it has a beautiful version, so go do it's it. It's a beautiful rendition. You know, Again, the same with the other one with a Jubal as well. I'm just very happy to have exposed these. You may have only watched it once every 15 years, but I've already seen this film a couple times this year alone, let alone what oh, I've wow. watched before. Because <laughs> I love and, it. Uh, how would you rank it against our other westerns we've gone through? This is, uh, let's see here. I actually have. So we've done uh, we we've done Shane Red Shane, River. Red River. Put it above them. Great Silence. Mm-hmm. I would put this a 
above Red River only slightly because Red River okay. uh, has a weird framing device that I don't like. I don't like the book framing device of it and the weird time jump that's just kind of poorly handled. But as far as like scale-wise, Red River really ups the ante there. Like Red River is an all-time western uh, outside of its kind of one trip up there and really could rank among the other great ones there. But it is slightly below stuff like Shane and yeah. uh, Great oh, Silence. Yeah. It's, it's in the same ranking there for me like i consider i love through turn to human the same way but what shane and what uh great silence do in terms of thematic uh material is is far greater than what 310 is 310 again is a very uh humble film i will say i'd put it uh below red river and above the wild bunch yeah, I think that's fair. Again, me, uh, you know, for those people out here who did not hear, me and you are not the biggest celebrators of the Wild Bunch, though we still greatly <laughs> no, appreciate it. It's true. I mean, uh, just because it's at the bottom of our list doesn't mean it's bad either, because we've only covered Westerns that we like so far. Well, that's the bottom of the, the list that yeah, we've discussed so far. We'll talk about other Westerns, I'm sure, that might rank below... Maybe uh, the, the remake Lynch. of this someday. We don't know, right? Oh, if is that if if that's still going on, Mel Gibson's remake. I don't know. I'm or I mean the remake of a uh, three ten. Oh, Maybe oh, we'll yeah. Get to that one day. <laughs> Maybe that if too we run be... out. I don't know. We'll never run out of westerns, man. There's so many to talk about. <laughs> There's so many great ones, and it's our favorite genre. So I'm always glad when we could get together for it. But uh, the Great Silence is better. Go watch that instead. I wouldn't say instead. Watch them both. Yeah, go watch it first then watch Shane <laughs> then this one maybe just watch all the westerns just like we go, have <laughs> go watch westerns they're good <laughs> <laughs>